the old pilot's plain tales, flying all the fours. Looking back on the final years of the Second World War, it's easy to forget that nobody knew quite when the conflict would end, and whilst the first and second generations of fighting aircraft were performing well against the Luftwaffe, a third generation would be needed to take on the technological advances that were being made by the German aircraft manufacturers. Pre-war biplanes had long been superseded by fighters and bombers like the Spitfire, Hurricane, BF-109, Wellington, B-17B-29, Polikarpov, I-16, Nakajima, Ki-27, Mackie C-200, etc. But despite modifications and updates, by 1945 a completely new generation of aircraft was arriving. Many such aircraft were constructed and flown and were thought to be the pinnacle of fighting science and manufacturing capability at the time, but we know little of them nowadays as the war ended and they never made it into service. They were surplus to requirement. But let them not disappear completely into the dusty annals of history because had the war continued for a year or two, they would have been the poster children, the celebrated war-winning machines that we all remembered, and their names would be famous. Let's start with the Republic XF-12 Rainbow. An odd name for a military fighting aircraft, but I'm sure, had it come into service, the Army Air Corps would have renamed it something like the Flashy Fortress. Republic were building an aircraft to fly all the fours. That is, have four engines, a 400 mile per hour cruise speed, a 4,000 mile range, and fly at 40,000 feet. The original proposal came from the Air Corps for a reconnaissance aircraft capable of high speed overflight of the Japanese homeland to locate key installations. And to accomplish this task, the aircraft required good speed, range and altitude capabilities for its missions. The design of the Rainbow was based on a low drag coefficient and its gleaming cigar-shaped fuselage with a futuristically streamlined glazed nose achieved this. She had long slender tapered wings that sported its four tightly cowled slim Pratt & Whitney R4360 Wasp Majors, each with 28 cylinders in four air-cooled rows. The engines featured sliding cowls for the two-stage impeller fans directly behind the prop spinners rather than the usual draggy cowl flap. Cooling air was drawn in from the leading edge of the wing in between the power plants, which was extremely efficient. And excess air, along with the engine exhaust, was ducted out of the back of the nacelles to aid thrust, calculated as an additional 1,000 horsepower for the four engines. Each of these slender engines was as long as a P-47 Thunderbolt. Sitting on its tricycle undercarriage, the XF-12 looked like it belonged to a new generation of bomber, and indeed it did. Its first flight was made in early 1946, and in demonstrations flights, it excelled, achieving an operational ceiling of 45,000 feet 
a speed of 470 miles an hour and a range of over 4,500 miles, exceeding its goals by a significant margin. The Rainbow's reconnaissance capability was also exceptional, and it employed inwards opening bay doors to limit drag, electrically heated camera lenses to reduce distortion, and it had a complete darkroom within the airframe to allow the film to be developed during flight. For a demonstration, the Rainbow made a run from California to New York at 40,000 feet, photographing the entire width of the United States onto a 325-foot-long strip of film which recorded a 500-mile swathe of the country. The flight was featured in Life magazine and the actual film strip was put on display in New York. Sadly, the newly formed United States Air Force decided not to go ahead with the XF-12, and used the less capable B-29 as a stopgap until the Boeing B-47 Stratojet came into service. Republic tried to market a civilian version, but no orders were made. Had it been ready a few years earlier, it would undoubtedly have found an important place in the order of battle, but it remains the ultimate expression of multi-engine, piston-powered aircraft design, its high-speed, near-perfect, streamlined form, and neatly cowled engines make it a design classic, often unappreciated and not very well known, and the XF-12 was the fastest four-engine, pure piston-powered aircraft of its day, and the only one ever to exceed 450 miles per hour in level flight. Martin Baker, the company we now associate with their life-saving ejector seats, started life as an aircraft manufacturer, which was producing aircraft in the 1930s. Their first military design was the MB-2, a fighter designed for the tropics and powered by the Napier Dagger, but although it was capable of over 300 miles an hour, even with its fixed undercarriage, it never went into production. By 1942, the company had improved on the MB-2, and the MB-3 was designed with an amazing six Hispano 20mm cannons, making it the most heavily armed fighter in existence. It was a tail-wheeled aircraft with a fuselage profile similar to that of a Spitfire, but with more rectangular wing planforms that simplified construction and powered by a Napier Sabre. It could reach 40,000 feet and 415 miles per hour. The construction was all metal, with panels fitted around a tubular metal fuselage, and the laminated steel wing spar was extremely strong. The undercarriage and flaps were simple, sturdy, effective and reliable, being pneumatically powered. Following a successful first flight by Captain Baker, one of the company's founders, the aircraft proved to be highly manoeuvrable and easy to fly. But then, soon after takeoff, the MB-3 suffered an engine failure, and in trying to save the aircraft, Baker made a forced landing. Sadly, he hit a tree stump and was killed. 
From this start, a Griffin-powered MB-4 followed and then came the MB-5. Outwardly similar, the MB-5 was a monster, being powered by the Rolls-Royce Griffin 83 V12 engine. It sported a huge six-bladed contra-rotating propeller, which gave it a speed of 460 miles per hour. A key feature was its simple design and easy construction, favouring straight lines and with excellent access to components thanks to a system of detachable panels. Test pilots considered its performance outstanding and the cockpit layout was praised by the Aeroplane and Armament Experimental Establishment. The famous Winkles Brown fluid and said... In my opinion, this is an outstanding aircraft, particularly when regarded in the light of the fact that it made its maiden flight as early as the 23rd of May 1944. One of the best aerobatic pilots in the UK at the time, squadron leader Janusz Zerakowski, gave a spectacular display in the MB5 at Farnborough during the air show in June 1946, an aircraft he considered superlative and better in many ways to the Spitfire he flew during the war. Sadly, slow development, due in the main to a lack of government support, prevented the aircraft from serving, and this wonderful fighter was eventually parked up on a gunnery range and destroyed. Devastated by the death of his colleague, Martin went on to devise the famous aircraft escape systems that we are familiar with, but in respect for his fellow owner, he never took the name of Captain Baker from the company's letterhead. The Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation was an Australian manufacturing facility established in 1936 to give the country the ability to produce its own military aircraft and engines. Its first fighter, built for the RAAF, was the CAC Boomerang, which used a locally made Pratt & Whitney R1830 twin WASP engine. The fighter was only moderately successful, lacking the speed, barely more than 300 miles an hour, and high-altitude performance to take on Japanese Zeros. It did, however, prove to be a very useful ground-attack aircraft. As the boomerang moved towards obsolescence, the CAC was working on its replacement, the Kangaroo. Outwardly, this large, single-engine, single-pilot fighter looked a bit like a Mustang on steroids. Without access to the turbocharged Pratt & Whitney R2800 engine of choice, the Kangaroo was fitted with the Rolls-Royce Griffin, which, in production aircraft, was due to be equipped with a three-stage supercharger. Sadly, design and production was slowed by the end of the war, and the prototype didn't fly until March 1946. But it apparently achieved a level flight speed of 448 miles an hour. Test flying came to an abrupt end, though, when the kangaroo had a leak and the hydraulics failed halfway through gear extension, leaving the main undercarriage only halfway down. On landing, the kangaroo kangarooed between its tail wheel and large belly until the air scoop dug in. 
and finally skidded to a halt, heavily damaged but repairable, and flew again in 1948 when it exceeded 500 miles an hour after a shallow dive of 4,000 feet. However, the writing was on the wall for piston fighters as the jet age approached, and in 1954, CAC delivered its first CA-27 Sabre, built under licence but sporting a Rolls-Royce Avon, giving it twice the thrust-to-weight ratio of the original US version. I shall finish this small selection of aircraft that might have been introduced by telling you about the Horton HO-229. Unlike the four fours that this story started with, this prototype German light fighter bomber was designed to hit the three ones, as demanded by Hermann Goering. 1,000 kilos of bombs for 1,000 kilometres at 1,000 kilometres per hour. That is, 2,200 pounds for 620 miles at 620 miles per hour. The design that the Horton brothers, best known for their gliders, came up with was a jet-powered version of their pre-war series of flying-wing sailplanes. The brothers had constructed several versions of tailless gliders and then powered wings driven by a pair of Argus V8s. To go from this to a jet-powered version was quite a step, but their HO229 was exactly that. The futuristic aircraft was a swept wing with a span of nearly 17 metres, about 55 feet, which smoothly blended into the fuselage bulge. Either side of the cockpit were the round intakes designed to take two BMW 3 jet engines, which exhausted over the top of the wing, about 10 feet forward, of the nib-shaped fuselage trailing edge. Overheating of the fuselage was to be prevented by air cooling ducted from the jet's outer casing. The construction was mixed between the centre pod made from welded steel tubing and the spars made from wood. The machine was covered with plywood panels glued together with a charcoal and sawdust mix. The control surfaces were a combination of elevons and spoilers. Version 1 was an unpowered glider which flew in March 1944, but eventually crashed when the pilot tried to land without retracting a probe carrying instruments. The V-2 flew with the Junkers Jumo 4 jet engines and handled well, with only moderate lateral instability, a typical problem with tailless aircraft. The second flight included simulated combat with the new jet-powered ME-262 and showed the HO-229 to have excellent manoeuvrability. A few flights later, an engine fire destroyed the prototype, killing the pilot, who was thought to have succumbed to fumes and fallen unconscious. The final prototype, V-3, was larger and more capable than the first two, but it was never completed. With the US forces advancing on one side and the Soviets on the other, the US Army rushed ahead to capture as much advanced German technology as possible, and Operation Paperclip 
ensured that the V-3 was transported to the Royal Aircraft Establishment for evaluation. It was hoped that it might fly after retrofitting a pair of early British turbojets since the US were still some way from building their own. Sadly, the size of the early centrifugal compressor jets was not compatible with the HO229. The performance of the V2 was remarkable for the time, as it was capable of reaching 960 kilometers per hour, that's 600 miles an hour, for a range of 1,900 kilometers, 1,200 miles. One can only wonder at what the V3 would have been capable of. There has been considerable discussion as to whether the HO229 might be considered the first stealth aircraft. Not only did its design resemble future stealth flying wings, but it was thought that the charcoal dust mixed in with the wood glue might have absorbed radar electromagnetic waves. Engineers from Northrop Grumman and then the Smithsonian undertook examination of the salvaged centre section of the V3 and discovered that the aircraft would have had a smaller radar cross-section than a conventional twin-engine bomber. After an expenditure of quarter of a million dollars and two and a half thousand man-hours, it was found that a theoretical HO229 approaching the English coast at low level would have been detected by the home chain radar system at a distance only 80% that of a Messerschmitt BF-109, which implies a frontal radar cross-section of only 40% that of the 109. In addition to their work on the HO229, it was discovered that the Horton brothers were also working on the six-engined Horton HO18. An intercontinental jet bomber, it would have been capable of reaching the United States and indeed it was one of Goering's pet projects and named the American Bomber. Construction was due to begin in the autumn of 1945, but the war ended before significant progress could be made. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. But if you enjoy Plane Tales as a standalone podcast, then why not leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice?